Hey, good morning, City Light. Good to see you this morning. Uh, my name is Dan, and I get the privilege of being the worship director here. And this morning, I get that special joy of being led in worship by Sarah and uh, sharing with you out here from, like, the scary front part of the stage. This is like the no-go zone for worship leaders, right? Um, and honestly, it does feel a little like no man's land to me out here uh, because there's no mic stand that I get to hide behind and uh, I might, like, try to raise this up, so stop me if I do that. If I do weird things with my hands, if I try to hold a guitar that's not there, just kind of roll with it, and we'll be okay. Uh, the fact that I'm speaking to you this morning is actually kind of amazing, because growing up, I had a pretty significant fear of public speaking. And over the years, I've learned to trust God to provide the strength and ability to do what he's calling me to do, uh, but that definitely wasn't always the case. Um, Back in seventh grade, I was required to take a class called speech. And I thought, that's all right. I know some words. I know how to speak. I didn't realize it was speaking in front of people. And if you've ever spoken in front of a room full of seventh graders, you know what fear is. Uh, and so, you know, I wrote a speech. I wrote it out on notebook paper in green metallic gel pen to make sure that I would remember it. And ironically, that's the only part of that message that I remember, you know. Uh, but it was about me, and it had to be two minutes long, and it had to be memorized. And so that fateful day, my teacher calls me up to the front of the room, and I stand there for two minutes, absolutely silent. I said not a word, and after 30 seconds, I realized there's no brain in my head. And my class realized it, and eventually my teacher said, Daniel, do you want to come look at your notes? And I was like, yeah, I want to look at my notes. Look at my notes, go back up. I stand for a minute, and I start to look at the ceiling, like hoping that there's notes up there or something and, or that God's going to miraculously give me the ability to remember this. I don't remember. And she says, try again tomorrow. And so for that, that speech, uh, there was past the point of no return. There was no going back and fixing that. Uh, I did eventually deliver the speech, but maybe you felt that way before. Maybe you felt like the situation is too far gone or you are too far gone. And I want to show you this morning a God who goes with us to those places and doesn't allow us to be too far gone. I want to walk with you through the story of Jonah and through some of my own story as well. And what I really long the most for, church, is that you would hear the voice of God this morning. Uh, so I want to introduce you to Jonah, and I want to start in his word to do that. Um, Jonah, we just finished talking about Jesus and his birth, and Jonah is a Hebrew prophet who's living about 750 years before Jesus is born, to give you some context. And he was actually pretty well known among his people. Uh, he was known because before the beginning of this book, he prophesied to the king that the nation of Israel would take back some land from her enemies, and they did. But that's not why we know who he is today. Uh, we know who he is because the portion of his story that God chose to include in his word is about a prophet who went rogue and an evil city that turned to God. And I think it's also a call for us to examine our hearts and where we are with God. And so in the beginning of Jonah, God speaks to Jonah and he says this, he says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. So Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and it's a city full of pagan Gentiles, so about as far from a Hebrew prophet as you can get. 
And maybe that's why it was so offensive to Jonah that God should call him to speak to these people and call them to repentance. Jonah doesn't want to go. And so he tries to flee to a place called Tarshish. Jonah, if you look at a map, is literally going as far away from Nineveh as you can possibly get. So this city of Tarshish was right where they thought the edge of the world must be, that place where you like sail off the edge and all the water pours out into space. And so Jonah tries to go there. To put it in context, if Jonah were a resident of Council Bluffs and God called him to preach in New York, he would get a plane ticket to Los Angeles. If he was a red race car trying to get away from life, he would go to Radiator Springs. Uh, but he's, he's a, a Hebrew prophet, and he's trying to run from God, and so he goes to Tarshish, naturally. I don't know what your story is like, but in my story, I tried running from God for a season. I grew up in a home with parents who loved the Lord and taught me to love Jesus. But when I entered my early teens, I started to notice how many things the world had to offer me to chase after, and I chased after them. I stopped taking an interest in the things of God, and I started to seek whatever pleasure the world had to offer. And I remember around this time, my mom looked at me one day, and she had a sad expression on her face, and she said, Daniel, you're becoming too worldly. She was concerned about me. And in the moment, I laughed at her. But years later, I still remember that moment. So parents, don't be... Don't be let down by those words that you speak to your kids and you think they're not listening because often they hear them and those seeds that are planted take a while to spring up. So where I was at the time, I thought if I could just have that next thing, if I could just get to that next milestone, my life would be great. I would be satisfied. And my whole life basically centered around me and these three goals that I had for myself. So the first goal was to get a girlfriend obviously. The second goal was to get a gold medal in men's gymnastics. And the third goal was to get my license so that I could drive myself places uh, like the gym and to get my girlfriend, right? Um, I told you, the world was centered around me. Um, And so my faith became somewhat of a nuisance to me as I pursued these things because it felt like Jesus was getting in my way, in the way of what I really wanted to have So I pursued these other things with all my heart. I spent probably five days and 20 hours a week in the gym. And when I wasn't at the gym, I was talking to my prospective girlfriend on the phone. And I waited for that day when I would turn 16 and I would get my driver's license. The summer before I turned 16, three things happened over a very short period of time. The first is that the girl who was basically pledged to be my girlfriend pre-broke up with me, making her my pre-ex-girlfriend. Um, A few weeks later, I get a phone call from the gym, and they say, we're closing down for good. My career in gymnastics was over, effective immediately. Uh, And finally, my parents, whose main motivation for me getting my license was to drive myself to the gym, uh, said, you know, we'll just wait until you're 17, because insurance goes down at that point in time. So all my dreams for my whole life as a 16-year-old kid were over, And I was very dramatic, and apparently I'm still dramatic now. Uh, But in the moment, I had run from God, and I had chased after these things that the world said would give me satisfaction, and I had nothing to show for it. But here's my question. Even if I had got the girl and 
become an Olympic gymnast and gotten my license that year? Would I be standing here before you today telling you about how all my wildest dreams had come true? I don't think so. I believe that there would have been other dreams that would have sprung up in their place and they would have also left me empty because none of those dreams were revolving around Jesus who is the one who satisfies. And you know, I'm so grateful that at that point in my life, God used a friend of mine named James to come to me and say, Dan, since you've got some free time on your hands, why don't you come with me to youth group? And you know, it's cool because James is still my friend today. His parents actually come to our church and God used him in that moment to call my name. And I started going to youth group and I started spending time uh, in the community of believers and That summer, I found myself at a Christian concert, and I listened to the artist on stage say that God has called my name, and he calls me his own. And I realized that this whole time that I had been running away, God had been very near to me, and he had been pursuing me this entire time. And so, even in that moment of my rebellion, I turned my life over to him, and that's where I found the joy that I had been looking for in every other thing. So let's go back to Jonah. Jonah is in the middle of rebelling against God at this point. He ends up in a situation that is much worse than mine. God causes a storm to blow over this ship that he's on, and the storm is a doozy. Like, this storm is so bad that these seasoned sailors who know what they're doing think the ship is going to break apart. And so they start throwing all of their cargo overboard, and then they start praying to their gods and saying, asking them to save them from this storm. And what do you think happens? The storm gets worse because their gods have no power over the storm. Uh, And so the captain goes down and he finds Jonah, and Jonah is sleeping in the bottom of the ship. So they ask Jonah to come back up, and they ask him, you have to pray to your God. And then they start asking him questions like who he is, what he does for a living. And it's kind of odd when you're reading, like, what are they doing having an icebreaker moment in the middle of this storm? But eventually they find out that Jonah is a prophet, and Jonah is running from his God. not good. So they ask him, who is your God? And he says this, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Yikes. The men were exceedingly afraid. They are terrified, and their response is great. Why have you done this, right? And it's interesting to me that these pagan men are the ones to criticize Jonah, the prophet of God, for not listening to God. God uses the most unlikely people sometimes. So Jonah tells them to throw him into the sea and the storm will quiet down. And at first they refuse. These sailors refuse to accept the willing sacrifice of one man in order to receive their salvation. And they're going to make it through on their own strength. And that sounds a lot like another guy that we just finished talking about, doesn't it? So what do they do? They go back to the oars and they start rowing and the storm gets worse. Until finally, they close their eyes and they bow their heads and they say, I'm so sorry, and they throw Jonah overboard, and Jonah sinks beneath the waves, and the storm stops. And the sailors recognize that the God Jonah was running from is God Almighty, and their lives are changed completely. They make a vow before the Lord at that point. And you know, I would love to follow their story. I would love to find out what happened to them but this is Jonah's story. And for Jonah, this journey is just beginning. After he begins to sink to the bottom of the ocean, God arranges for an all-expenses-paid, three-day, three-night stay in the belly of a giant fish. And 
if you're like me, you want some details around this, right? Like, you want to know, is that even possible? What kind of fish could it have been? But I want to put that on hold for just a minute, and we're going to recognize that this is God who made the sea and the earth, and he's able to put a fish in the sea who can hold a prophet in timeout for a couple of days. Uh, Because if I get too hung up on the fish, I miss the what of what's happening here. Something even more amazing, God saves Jonah in the midst of his disobedience. And God saves Jonah in the moment that he gives up on running. God had every right to be done with Jonah. Jonah had deliberately disobeyed him. He had done the exact opposite of what God had called him to do. But God is merciful to Jonah And he has a plan for him. And over the course of the next three days and nights, Jonah recognizes the mercy of God and turns back to God. If you want to read Jonah's prayer while he's in the fish, that's in chapter 2, and I'm just going to read a piece of it to you because it's beautiful. He recognizes how he got where he is, and he recognizes who God is. Eric read a little bit of this earlier. He said, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope in steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So in this moment that Jonah thinks his life is over, he turns to God. He recognized that running from God and God's call And chasing the idol of his own dream for his life was not leading to hope because God is his hope. So again, I don't know what your experience has been like. If you've ever run from God, I don't know if you ran after really petty things like I did or if you ended up near death like Jonah. Either way, if you're here today, I can tell you with certainty that you are not too far gone in your rebellion that God still has a plan for you, that no matter how far you've tried to run and how hard you've tried to run to escape the Lord, he is still waiting for you to turn to him. And he is there with open arms. And he says, I've been waiting for you. Come follow me. That's his response to you. So Jonah, after this time in the fish, gets spit out on the beach. And we're going to leave him for a moment because he's stinky and we don't want to deal with him right now. We want to go ahead to Nineveh and look at this city. So I mentioned earlier that this city is the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and it is massive. So historians think that this city was probably the biggest in the world at that time. There was 120,000 people and, in addition to that, animals that were living in this city. That's like twice the size of Council Bluffs. And this city was full of people who were doing bad things. It was so bad that God actually started to speak out against the city using his prophets in Israel. So it wasn't uncommon for God to use a prophet to speak to his own people in Israel, but it was somewhat uncommon for God to use a prophet to speak to a pagan nation about their evil. And he says this through the prophet Nahum, "'Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and of plunder. There is no end to the prey.'" Things are so bad in this city that God decides to destroy it. He tells Jonah to go tell them this in the hope that they'll repent or turn away from their wickedness. So after Jonah gets spit out on the beach, 
he goes to Nineveh and he walks through the streets to tell them that God is going to destroy the city. And a short time later, Jonah sits back and he watches to see what's going to happen. And I think he's expecting to see destruction on a massive scale. Can you imagine watching a city of 120,000 people being destroyed by God? I think that's what Jonah's waiting to see. But what happens instead is even more breathtaking. The people start passing this word along that they've heard, and they believe God. They believe that their destruction is imminent, and they are terrified. The king of Nineveh hears about this, and he orders all of the people to start to stop eating, stop drinking, and start crying out to God for mercy, that they would be saved. And God sees all of this happen. He sees the city mourning their own sin, turning from their violent and wicked ways, and he has compassion on them. He does not choose to destroy the city. And this is what God desired. This is what he's all about, isn't it? So King David, years before in Psalm 51, said that the sacrifice God wants the most is a heart that is broken over sin. And he sees this broken heart in the 120,000 people who are living in Nineveh, and his response to that broken heart is mercy. He has mercy on them. And I think it's easy for us, here and now, knowing what we've done and where we've been, to think that we might be too far gone to be saved. Because you and I have this front row seat to all of the failures in our lives. We see the things that nobody else sees. We see the secret sin. We see the secret addiction that nobody else knows about. And we know that God knows about it. And we think that that might just disqualify us from God's love. But here's the good news. Jesus came to save people like us. Luke 5 says, I have not come to call the righteous, but call sinners to repentance. The people of Nineveh experienced a part of God's mercy when their city was saved from destruction. But we have seen the mercy of God in full in the person of Jesus Christ. So while Nineveh was waiting for God's wrath and judgment to be poured out on them, we know today that we have already seen God's wrath poured out, and it was poured out on the person of Jesus who took our punishment for us that we would have life instead. Paul in Romans 5 says that while we, you and I, were still sinners and enemies of God, just like the people in Nineveh, Jesus Christ died for us so that we could be saved from the wrath of God. You are never too far gone in your sin to be saved. I can say that with certainty, that the grace of God through Jesus Christ is enough for you, and we can rejoice that our penalty for our sin has been paid, and we are reconciled or restored to right relationship with God the Father through Jesus. So we've seen that you can't be too far gone in your rebellion. You cannot escape God. You can't be too far gone in your sin to be saved. And now we come back to Jonah. Jonah has finally arrived, right? I mean, he saved the city, mission accomplished, he should be celebrating, but he's not. He's sulking. And if we start to look a little closer at Jonah, I think we start to see some signs that despite all his time in prayer, something is still not right in his heart. The first sign of this that I see is actually when he goes into the city. So we know from Jonah chapter 3, verse 3, that the city is about three days' journey across. What that means is it took about three days to see most of the city. 
But Jonah goes how far? Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. So he walks for a day, yelling, in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. And I imagine he may have done it with a smile on his face. Uh, And he sees roughly a third of the city, and then he leaves to see what's going to happen. The king himself finds out about this pending destruction from the people who heard about it from Jonah, and then the other two-thirds of the people hear about it from the king who says, we have to do something. We have to say we're sorry and turn to God. They don't hear about it from the prophet that God sent. Because Jonah started to do what God asked him to do, but his heart was not in it. And when God decides to spare the city, instead of rejoicing, Jonah actually gets really upset with God. His heart is revealed in this response to God, which is something like a temper tantrum. It says this in chapter 4, verse 2. Lord, is, this, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. He's making excuses for himself. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Can you just hear the sass in his voice? Like he's talking back to God and I don't know whether to laugh or cry at this. Because he basically says, I knew this would happen. This is the kind of thing you're always doing. And then he goes on to list all of these things as an accusation against the Lord. And the weird part is he's absolutely right. This is who God is. He is gracious and he is merciful and he is slow to anger and he is abounding in steadfast, unshakable love. This is our God. See, Jonah knew who God was. He knew God's heart for people. And beyond knowing these things, he had experienced those attributes of God personally. From the outside, it looks like Jonah is where God wants him to be. It looks like he's even doing the work of God in that place. But God knows that his heart isn't in it. In spite of all that prayer and the appearance of obedience in Nineveh, his heart still didn't seek the heart of God. And this is where, for me, it gets kind of scary because this is where I identify the most with Jonah. I can be really good at religion. I can be really good at walking and talking and looking and singing the right way, but I can harbor a cold heart inside that only God knows about. I want to tell you one more story from my life, a little more recent. So a couple of years ago, I was leading worship at another church, and from the outside, things looked really good. I was leading a congregation in song every Sunday, and I was leading a youth ministry during the week, and I was watching my family grow, but on the inside, I was exhausted. I was frustrated. And I was developing a hard heart for the things of God. Because when things got busy and difficult, I tried to start doing things on my own strength. When I didn't have time for Jesus, I had to move him out of the way while I went to business. I didn't put Jesus as a matter of first priority in my life. And because of that, I stopped developing in me a heart for the people of God. God called me out of ministry for a season, and that was hard. And he introduced me to Pastor Steve Deal at Sherwood Community Church, which then merged with, with City Light Council Bluffs. 
And Pastor Steve made shepherding my heart a priority in his ministry, and he called me to walk with Jesus. And then he introduced me to these two knuckleheads named Doug and Eric, and they showed me what it looked like to serve the church. Chuck showed me what it looked like to set the center. And then I met this guy named Chuck, and Chuck showed me what it looked like to be a part of community and how Jesus calls us to love each other in community over the last few years. And you notice the common theme here in all these men that God used in my life over the last few years. They all call me to center around Jesus. So maybe you're like me, and you've started to exchange Jesus for religion. In church, it is so easy to do. It is easy to slip into. And you found your heart starting to get cold. Let me encourage you that you're never too far gone in your religion. And Jesus is the answer to that. It is Jesus who will not only give you a heart more like his own, but will also give you the strength to do the work that he's calling you to do. So in conclusion, my least favorite part about Jonah is the ending, because it just kind of ends. There's a long back and forth between God and Jonah in chapter 4, and then there's no resolution, because we don't find out how Jonah responds to God. We don't find out whether his heart was changed or where he went from there. That's something that only God and Jonah know, and that's similar to us. Only God knows the position of our heart. And I think we have to ask God to reveal that to us, because sometimes we fool even ourselves. But only God knows if you are still running in rebellion, or if you are living in sin, or if you are dying in religion. To those of you who are maybe still running from God, and you think that you're too far gone to return, you're not as far as you think from God. And in the moment that you turn to Jesus, he is there saying, I've been waiting. Come and follow me. To those of you who find yourselves in Nineveh and wonder if you're too sinful to be saved, I promise you are not too far gone. You are one pivot. You are one turn away from choosing Jesus and the life that he would give you and turning aside from the things that will bring you death. And finally, to those of you who have succeeded in fooling everyone else, and maybe even yourself, those of you that have the right appearance on the outside, but inside have a hard heart, I invite you to turn to Jesus because he will begin a new work in you that makes his heart more like his own and makes you satisfied in him alone. We're going to take communion in just a moment and then worship again by singing together. And as we prepare for communion this morning, I would invite you to do one of two things. If you're a follower of Jesus, and have asked him to be your Lord and Savior, I would invite you to take the bread that represents his body and remember how he was broken for you. And then take it and dip it in the juice that represents his blood and remember how his blood was poured out for you. And as you remember his sacrifice, draw closer to Jesus who offers to give you this life and to give it in abundance. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus, if you're running for hope in other places, I can tell you with certainty that Jesus is the hope that you are looking for. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, he is the hope that you are looking for. And I invite you to turn to him. I invite you to seek him out today and talk to him about that.
Let me pray for us this morning. Jesus, I thank you for the way that we are never out of your reach, for the way that you would follow us to the ends of the earth just to see us turn around and you welcome us with open arms at that point. I thank you for your sacrifice that was enough for the sin of the world and that you offer us your life in the place of the death that we deserve. Thank you for calling us close to yourself. Thank you for not leaving us to our own strength and ability. Would we seek you first, Jesus, and would we live in the joy that comes out of being made more like you? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.